from the UK perspective at least, is this implementation of the banking insolvency procedure and resolution powers, which has showed that without taxpayers' money, they were able to close a deal in a very short space of time, which has been a, a great testament to the restructuring and, and insolvency space as well. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. The University of Law offers a range of undergraduate and postgraduate courses and master's degrees alongside an award-winning pro bono clinic so you can build up your legal experience while studying. And their experienced career service will enable you to put your best foot forward when launching your legal career. The courses are employment focused and based on real legal practice so you'll be better prepared for the workplace. Part-time and online study options are available so you can work and study at the same time. Click the link in the description box of the podcast to find out more about the courses on offer. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a current law student, future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Crab Ready, insolvency and restructuring partner in the UK office of US law firm Katten Munchen Rosamond. During the episode, Prav and I talk about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and use it as a commercial case study to help student lawyers understand the technicalities involved in the acquisition of a distressed bank. Specifically, Prav explains the various procedures that the Bank of England can take when dealing with a bank on the brink of collapse, why HSBC was able to acquire Silicon Valley Bank UK for £1, when other banks like Credit Suisse go for billions, and how an insolvency and restructuring practice area of a law firm may be involved in such an acquisition. Trav also reveals what his typical day at the office looks like, the biggest misconception of working in a US law firm, and how to succeed as a student lawyer and progress the partnership. So without further ado, welcome to the Student Lawyer Trav. It's wonderful to have you here with us today. Hi Stephanie, lovely to be here too. Well, I'm very pleased to have you on the show. Um, you know, it doesn't take much research just to find out, you know, how knowledgeable you are in your field and that you work on really interesting and really high value cases. But um, yeah, from having the pleasure with working with you in the past, I know that you give an absolute knockout presentation. So um, that's another reason why I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you very much. And also your timing couldn't be better. Um, Well, with the collapse of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, you know, Credit Suisse um, and First Republic being bailed out as well. You know, it's it's, I think it's a great time to have you on the show and to kind of like give your um, expert opinion on, um, you know, what's going on. And just to help student lawyers as well have a deeper understanding of perhaps a restructuring and insolvency lawyers role um, when, you know, businesses and banks go into um, insolvency and when they need bailing out. So thank you very much for spending your morning or a portion of it chatting with us today. 
As I said, we're going to be talking about the um, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. But before we get into that, I was hoping that you could please introduce yourself and your practice, um, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so as I said, my, my name is Prav Reddy. I'm, I'm a partner in the insolvency and restructuring team at, at Catton, the UK office. Um, the UK team is two partners, three associates, uh, working alongside a large restructuring and insolvency team that's principally based in New York, Chicago, and Dallas. Um, in terms of um, uh, uh, the team's role, um, we act for uh, generally companies, boards of directors, insolvency practitioners, banks and creditors uh, in relation to companies or individuals in financial difficulty. And that can be whether it's via uh, formal insolvency measures or out-of-court processes as well. And and in terms of the sort of sectors we operate in, we, restructuring insolvency covers all sectors. Currently, we're, we're advising on matters in the mining sector, rail sector, TV and retail sector, and, and the crypto sector as well. So um, it's completely sec- sector agnostic, um, and that's part of the interesting element about um, the practice area we work in, I think. It does sound really interesting, restructuring and insolvency, you know, for all the reasons that you have just said. Um, but, you know, not only is it interesting, but because I think that you work with such an array of clients and across, you know, all the sectors, um, it just, you, you know, your day must be very varied. And for me, anyway, that just sounds very energising. So, um yeah, it does sound like a very interesting practice area. So what does the typical day at the office look like for you? Uh, well, I think one of the most interesting things about um, my role is there isn't really a typical day. Um, you know, as, as you've alluded to, uh, it's it's a very interesting time in the in restructuring and insolvency space at the moment with, with what's going on. Um, uh, and the nature of our work often requires things to be done at short notice under very tight deadlines. So, in the in the last week or so, um, we've had uh, between four and five hearings on various matters. That that could be a contested hearing regarding a disputed debt, uh, preparing for a summary judgment hearing, um, an administration order application. Um, negotiation and completion of a sale of a business, enabling um, hundreds of employees' jobs to be saved, and also negotiations um, around a multi-billion dollar settlement involving multiple jurisdictions and multiple parties. Um, In addition to the restructuring side, um, I'm also involved in the firm's trainee recruitment and vacation scheme. Um, and we're currently shortlisting applicants for the summer vacation scheme at the moment, which is uh, something the firm takes uh, makes a lot of effort in. And you know, we've had a fantastic cohort of trainees over the last few years. Oh, that's excellent! I will put a link in the show notes of this episode to um, the vacation scheme application, you know, part of the website. So, um, thanks ever so much for highlighting that. Um, so. You know, can you tell us a little bit about um, your career journey and why you decided to pursue a career as a restructuring and insolvency solicitor? Uh, sure. Um, so I I, um, I finished a, a non-law degree in, in London. Um, I then 
studied the GDL and the LPC. Uh, I then went on to train at a firm in the city and, and qualified into litigation. Around the time I qualified, uh, restructuring and insolvency uh, generally sat either in banking and finance for non-contentious transactional matters or in litigation for contentious work. Um, when I uh, became an associate, um, it became a more of an established practice area, particularly uh post the 2008 banking crash. Um, I then moved to a London firm and worked my um, way up from associate to partner. And in 2020, around the pandemic, I moved uh, to a US firm where I'm currently at. And one of the reasons I really like um, the area I work in is the variety of work, working with different clients, different businesses. Um, the clients range from insolvency practitioners at uh, accountancy firms, uh, banks, turnaround professionals, and co um, company directors, and also working with other lawyers in the network, both in the UK and internationally. So would you say that the restructuring and insolvency practice area is perhaps a little bit more, um, will you have more uh, client interaction than, say, another practice area? I think that's right. Um, yeah, so often um, if uh, if we're acting for a company or a board of directors, we'll often be holding their hand through um, through a process, whether it's navigating them through financial difficulties, whether it's assisting them in a formal insolvency process, there is a lot of client interaction. That's really good to know. Thank you. Um, so what did take you to Catton? And can you tell us what the biggest misconception is about working in a US law firm? Um, I think one of the... Um, one of the principal reasons um, I moved to Catton was having the US presence. It was a, a big draw, as many of the matters I'd worked on in the last few years have a US element. And having the ability to work with my colleagues in the US has been fantastic and helped develop my understanding better of the US bankruptcy regime. Um, it, I also um, was really attracted to the to the London office. Um, it's got a very clear growth strategy, uh, focuses on financial services clients and growing the transactional practices and, and working closely um, with the practice areas and clients in the US as well. And I think um, the biggest mis misconception is, is possibly that the US and U UK offices don't collaborate or are somehow separate or independent. Um, I don't have any comparators, but I can genuinely say the UK office across all the practice areas work very closely with the US offices and the practice group leaders and management are really engaged with the UK offices. Um, there's generally a US partner or an associate over from the US most weeks. And similarly, we're encouraged to travel to the US regularly as well, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, no, that sounds really good. Um, I mean, I'm going to be starting my training contract at a global law firm soon. Um, and I I do have a little bit of a wait in between finishing my degree and starting the SQE. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that drew me to the um, to Clifford Chance is, you know, their, you know, their global reach and um, the cross-border transactions, everything like that. Um, and 
I was re- I was thinking about doing the New York bar because I really wanted to get a really deeper understanding of, you know, like exactly what was going to be going on and the matters that I was going to be dealing with. So I can really understand why you wanted to go to a US law firm to get completely like, I don't know, um, just so involved and immersed in all of that. Um, so, yeah, that does sound really interesting, a great career. So let's talk a little bit now about um, Silicon Valley Bank. Rather than going into like too much of the technical aspects of it, I suppose, um, what, you know, usually the newspapers are covering, um, I thought it'd be great if we could really break it down um, so the student lawyers can really understand what's happening and what the um, what the reports are actually getting at when they're reporting on them. Okay. For the news broke, you know, last week that the Bank of England had exercised its resolution powers to sell SBB, the UK um, subsidiary, to HSBC, it was reported that it had intended to proceed with opening a bank insolvency procedure. Now, I was hoping that you could just please explain what a bank insolvency procedure procedure is um, and also what resolution powers are and why the Bank of England may have decided to go um, with the resolution powers. Sure. Um, It was quite a fast-paced move. I mean, I think on Friday, I think it may have been reported that uh, they were going to institute the bank insolvency procedure. And then by the Monday, I think they'd um, the, the the resolution process had had been instituted. Um, so the bank insolvency pre- pre- procedure was established um, in under the Banking Act two thousand and nine, uh, post the banking crisis in two thousand and eight, and the banking insolvency f- procedure framework is is largely based on the liquidation process in the Insolvency Act, um, and most importantly. Uh, the primary focus is to enable compensation payments to be paid to depositors under the financial services compensation scheme, which is up to the protected limit of 85,000 or 170,000 for for joint accounts. Um, The process is started by a court order, generally upon the application of the Bank of England. um, And once the uh, banking insolvency procedure is established, usually a liquidation process, um, the bank's other assets and liabilities would be managed in the insolvency by the bank liquidators and the recoveries would be distributed to its creditors like in a normal winding up process. And the bank insolvency procedure is likely to be used if the bank failure is unlikely to have an adverse uh, systemic consequence, and secondly, if the bank entity is unlikely to find a buyer. So as I said, on on the Friday, it looked as though, or the Bank of England had announced that it intended to apply to court um, for a banking insolvency procedure. In terms of the resolution powers, that's also derived from the Banking Act 2009, um, with the view to protect and enhance UK financial stability. And, and these powers can be used by the Bank of England if certain criteria are met. And usually that's in consultation with the PRA, the Prudential Regulation Authority, the, the FCA 
and the Treasury. And they have to be satisfied that, firstly, the bank is failing or likely to fail, that it's not likely to change, that it's in the public interest for the resolution powers to be implemented, and that a winding up process would not have the same outcome. If those criteria are met, then the resolution powers can be used to affect a sale or transfer of the of the institution. And that's what happened in relation to the sale to HSBC. Just in terms of the Bank of England choosing those resolution powers, so on the 10th of March, it announced or published a statement saying that the uh, an application to court for a banking insolvency procedure would be an up, adopted. And then a further statement was made on the 13th of March, the Monday, saying that there'd been a sale to HSBC for £1 consideration. And in, in terms of the kind of mo- a change of this approach, uh, I think it's um, sort of threefold in terms of the reasons. I think firstly, the, the emergence of a potential buyer together with the government involvement. Um, there was also concerns um, for the reputation of the tech banking sectors in the UK and the negative visuals. And I th- as I understand it, it was reported that a number of the um, Silicon Valley Bank UK clients voiced their concerns after the banking insolvency procedure was first intimated by the Bank of England. Thank you ever so much for, um, for you know, shedding light on all of that. You know, I think that you've given a um, very easy to digest answer. Um, so, yeah, thank you. I'd like to take a moment to speak about the University of Law, which is the university I decided to study my LPC at. The University of Law is the sponsor of this podcast and makes it possible for us to continue bringing these episodes to you. So we really appreciate you supporting us by supporting our sponsors. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. The University of Law's experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life legal experience which can boost employability. They offer a range of undergraduate and postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students excel at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses courses to help students work and study at the same time. If you'd like to find out more about the courses on offer, please click the link in the description box of the podcast. So as you said, um, the Bank of England thought it was unlikely to find a buyer, but you know, it did. HSBC decided to acquire um, it. Why do you think that HSBC did decide to do it? You know, all the banks that could have, why HSBC? Um, And what do you think could have been a deal breaker? or um, HSBC? Well, I think um, the, the practice of purchasing distressed assets is not a new concept. And there were uh, apparently a number of uh, several other potential bidders that were involved. Um, as I understand it, by Sunday night, uh, most of those other bidders had fallen away and only HSBC were left. Um, given its own financial strength, it was able to take a pragmatic view, uh, taking into account the acquisition price. In the aftermath of the completion of the deal, HSBC has branded the deal as making 
ex- excellent strategic sense and enhancing their ability in the tech and life sciences sector. Um, I also understand that um, on the limited or expedited due diligence that HSBC undertook, they had ascertained that approximately 70% of SBC, SVP's loan book were high quality credit lines. Um, there was something like 6.7 billion of deposits and 5 point billion in, uh, of loan book. So they um, decided that it was effectively worth the risk. In terms of potential deal breakers, I think if on the, you know, obviously it happened in a very, very short time frame over, over a weekend. I think if the the fundamental numbers on the analysis were more underwhelming or there were substantial red flags in that expedited due diligence process, that may have um, tipped the balance um, against uh, an acquisition. Um, I also think the purchase price of one million of sorry of one pound was reflective of the risk they were pre- prepared to take at, at short notice, and also the, the the goodwill from the Bank of England uh, that was afforded by rescuing a financial institution and protecting thousands of employees that may have also been a factor. I think. Yeah, I suppose when when you look at the pros and the cons, um, and then throw in the purchase price of one pound, it um, for I mean for a bank like HSBC, I think that it's a a um, pretty good deal to uh, to go for. But you know why was the why was the purchase price so cheap when, for example, Credit Suisse has just been sold for? I mean, don't quote me on this, but the little bit of research I've done shows. Um, 3.2 billion dollars yeah I, I think uh, the, the purchase price I think was reflective of the risk and the fact that by Sunday evening HSBC were the only candidate that were left uh, as I understand it they're reportedly planning to inject a further 2 billion into the bank um, they've also I think immediately after the acquisition, confirm that they intend to honour the bonuses, which are estimated to be about 15 to 20 million in order to retain employees. I think one of the other fundamental things were was that in the short time frame, they weren't anal- able to analyse approximately 30% of um, Silicon Valley UK's loan book. So there was a risk attached to that. Um, and I, I think this is just indicative of a deal happening very quickly with very, very limited due diligence. Thank you for um, explaining that. That really does make sense. Um, So how might the restructuring and insolvency practice area of a law firm be involved in um, such an acquisition? Well, I think um, on the when it was intimated that it would be a bank insolvency process, you would usually have a restructuring and insolvency practitioner advising on the application to court, whether that's for the Bank of England in terms of the application to be made or for the proposed liquidator that would be appointed to manage the affairs of the bank. That is very similar to an application for uh, an administration order or you know, a, a normal insolvency application. So that would generally involve um, a restructuring insolvency practice. And when, when the deal pivoted to a sale by resolution powers, You'd, you'd normally still have the restructuring insolvency lawyers. They would advise on the acquisition 
and also would be on standby in case the share deal had not closed. Thank you. Um, so moving across the pond uh, now, what was the long-term cause of um, US, uh, the US uh, Silicon Valley Bank's collapse? And why did it happen when it did? Um, well, I think there's been a variety of reports that have come out and there will obviously have to be a proper analysis undertaken in the in the forthcoming months stroke years. However, from, from the reports, um, it seems like the bank collapse has been a combination of questionable commercial decisions surrounding effective risk management, poor communication with shareholders, clients, the market, and the contagion of panic. It's been reported that the bank bought billions of long-term US Treasury bonds over the last few years. And as interest rates um, were raised, the value of the bonds fell and customers demanded higher returns. Also, at the same time, um, the bank allowed customers to uh, withdraw funds very easily. Um, This sort of call on the bank led to the bank having to sell off assets, including those bonds, at a loss of about uh, $1.8 which um, then prompted the ratings agencies to downgrade uh, the bank's ratings. Um, The outlook was negative and led to further withdrawals by customers. Um, then I think on the th- on the 9th of March, um, the bank indicated that it wanted to raise a further 2.25 billion to try and shore up its finances. And then a call with the shareholders on the same day appears to have had a negative effect with the shares dropping by 60% and then being frozen by the Friday morning. By Friday afternoon, after the share crash, um, it sparked a run on the on the bank, and and on on that afternoon, the Californian regulators had closed down the bank. Thank you very much for um, giving us that insight to that. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. You know, as you said, um, in the following months and years, to see you know what the um, real 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 root cause of the um problem was but you know it does give me 2008 vibes you know i mean i don't think it's as bad as that yet but i think i mean this is one of the things that's been from the uk perspective at least is this implementation of the banking insolvency procedure and resolution powers which has showed that without um taxpayers money they were able to close a deal in a very short space of time which has been a a great testament to the restructuring and, and insolvency space as well. Excellent, yeah. Um, so do you think that there'll be long-term societal implications that have come off of, um, you know, these couple of banks' closures? Um, I think probably the short answer is possibly yes. Um, I think these bank liquidity issues seem here to stay, at least for the short term. Uh, I think one of the one of the aspects that will come out of S. VP is whether customers should place all their deposits with one institution in the wake of this and other bank concerns, you know, having all your eggs in one basket, is that a prudent uh, position to be in? Uh, I mean, the Bank of England has has sort of repeated that there was no systemic threat to the banking sector in the UK. However, as you've alluded to, there are 
a number of banks that continue to struggle. We've got Signature Bank uh, in New York that's collapsed. Uh, shares in First Republic have, have crashed. And as you said, the um, the rescue by UBS of Credit Suisse, which was announced yesterday. Well, thank you very much for those tips. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you've given great advice to future business owners as well with uh, what to do with their um their finances um, in the future. So moving on now to the part of the podcast where we're going to talk about, you know, how to really succeed as a student lawyer and progress to partnership. So in your opinion, what are the main qualities that you will find in an outstanding trainee? I would say uh, communication skills are really important. Um, and that that's in terms of uh, managing compete, competing deadlines. Um, I think often as trainees, you're juggling a number of plates, different deadlines. And I think a key feature is being able to communicate to your supervisor, uh, your colleagues in your seat, uh, to be able to manage those expectations. I also think inquisitiveness is really important. Uh, Trying to understand the bigger picture on assignments, asking questions, trying to understand strategy in relation to tasks, whether it's litigation related, you know, advisory or, or, or drafting. Excellent. Thanks so much for those tips. And I suppose um, that would be great for people too that's uh, thinking about applying for uh, CASN. So same question for associate. What do you think makes an outstanding associate? I, I would say taking ownership of of the of your work and and understanding that different clients may have different styles whether it's term in terms of the style of advice detailed notes executive summaries you know you know the one size fits all sort of methodology um and also the communication methods again i think managing expectations i think a client's biggest criticism generally is is not being kept in the picture or being asked to sign or agree something at very short notice. I also think, and I, I, I try and do this as well, is trying to find solutions rather than problems when giving advice. E- even when there's a case that's doomed to fail, the client will still appreciate you suggesting solutions, which may be to settle early or somehow mitigate the position. I also think taking an interest at an early stage in business development and aligning yourself with peers to try and grow your network as early as possible. I mean, some of the clients I work with are people I've known for 15 years, 16 years. That, I guess, is a great segue into my next question. Um, What is the best way to win and retain business? I think everybody has different styles. I would say uh, expertise in the area of law, keeping abreast of legal developments. Um, I think building trust and rapport with clients is very important. Um, being responsive and accessible to clients as well. And again, um, to say the same thing again, managing expectations at an early stage. So surprises are kept to a minimum with clients. Um, do you know what? I was at a uh, presentation a couple of months ago now, actually, and it had 
partners and associates from a law firm and I had clients as well and we were talking about um, what makes a great lawyer and you know uh, how to build client relations and when it was time for the client to speak they said you know the the thing that we wanted a law, uh, in a lawyer is um, kind of like honesty and managing expectations which you know you've kept uh, referring to and this this uh, lady said, you know, she would rather a lawyer tell her that they can get a piece of work back to her in a week and be able to deliver in time than a lawyer who says, you know, I can do it in three days. Or if asked to do it in three days, just says, yeah, you know, that's fine. And then, you know, miss the deadline. So managing expectations, I think, is a real key one. And also you mentioned... Uh, staying on top of legal developments now I think that this one is um you know such a key one as well of course um but as well for student lawyers as well because in the lead up to you know preparing for training contract um interviews and all that kind of stuff and I guess because you know student lawyers are interested in a career in law you know understanding these legal developments will be of interest to them so how do you think is um is an accessible way for student lawyers to understand legal developments and um, just really understand what's going on. Is there a newspaper or um, like uh, just any kind of outlet that you would recommend for student lawyers to keep abreast of these matters? Yeah, I think there there are a number of kind of resource tools that are available. I'm sort of talking about the ones I use. I think uh, I use Lexology, which is often articles drafted by different firms on different subjects on different practice areas so i uh, you know you get a daily updater on on lexology which i try and keep um on top of um th- th- there's also um lexis nest lexis nexus westlaw uh they give articles um i think they're they're on a daily basis and weekly basis as well uh and i think later on i often look at particular cases as well and look at the cases as well because when you're reading a judgment you get to see different sides of the argument the judge is thinking of and how he's developed or he or she has developed you know the the solution at at the end of it excellent thank you very much for sharing that um so we're approaching the end of the interview now so i have just one final question for you um and that is what advice would you give to your younger self uh, it's quite a difficult one. Um, so I, I'd say um, take up the chance to to work with mentors if you have the opportunity, whether that's within your firm or outside. I think you know everyone could look back on their career and see somebody that's influenced or shaped their career in some way. Uh, you know, experience counts for a lot. Um, also not not to be too hard on yourself learn learn from your mistakes and and setbacks and and turn them into positives and i think finally um work hard and but enjoy yourself at the, at the at the same time excellent thank you so much for sharing that and thank you like ever so much for um joining us and giving your expert opinion on you know the um very topical things that are going on I hope that you have enjoyed yourself as well. And um, yeah, just thank you very much. It's been uh, great having you on the show. Pleasure. It's been lovely to speak to you.
Excellent. Well, thank you as well for everybody for tuning in to another episode of The Student Lawyer and we'll see you back again here next time. To hear more of The Student Lawyer's podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join The Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.